This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Navy is looking for ways to save money on high energy consuming buildings. That includes data centers with their air conditioning demands. Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command Southwest just implemented energy savings measures in a data center on Naval Base Coronado. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni gets the details from NAVFAC mechanical engineer Doug McCurda. With our program, we'd look at energy saving projects, and it just, like, this one just happened to be a data center. You know, we don't necessarily go out and find all the data centers, and, you know, usually we go base-wide, and we find a bunch of buildings, and we go in and see what kind of stuff we can do. And this one was was focused on data center because it was one of the largest energy-consuming buildings in Coronado, and, you know, we we stick within our, our region, so you know, Southern California, Nevada, a little bit Arizona. And so that that was the biggest, basically, consumer in, in our area. It's a big room, full of servers. you got to keep it at a certain temperature that's 24-7. You know what I mean? So there's there's constant cooling, and, and that's probably why it's one of the biggest consumers. Um, you know, we have other facilities where, you know, people go home at night, and you can turn off the lights, turn off the AC, and, you know, you're done. You only have – you only consume energy essentially from – the days the time that they're working, well, you go to the dentist center, and now you're talking 24/7 year-round. So that's that's why you're, uh, you know, yeah, you have significant um, higher costs <laughs> for those buildings. You're working at this point on trying to reduce some of these energy costs, and you've been working with uh, some contractors in order to do that. Can you tell me a little bit about how this came about, and what else you're trying to do in order to start to bring this these energy costs down kind of our background is we do a lot of these energy saving projects you know different it's usually finance sometimes it's with the local utility company in this case it's you know the ECC there's with these uh escos or energy saving um companies basically that are you know big big companies across the nation and and you know they all kind of bid on these projects but i, I think there was a push for a few years ago to start using these contracts a little bit more uh, as a way to um you know, to pay for a project because, you know, essentially you have to go out and get capital and, you know, you don't have all the funding, you use it in finance and you use it within your utility budget that you already have. So I think there was more of a push to like, hey, let's go and, and, and you know, use these, this contracting method and let's see if we can get some big projects, bigger, bigger energy savings. So that kind of was a top-down approach of, hey, let's start using this, you know, start looking at your installations and see what, what, um, what we can do. And, you know, when we're looking at within our installations, you have a, a list of, you know, the top energy using buildings in, in the, on base. And so you look at, in this particular case, the data center was, you know, what, at one of the, the top at the list. So we're so, okay, well, let's focus on that and see what kind of project we can do. And then that, that's kind of how it, how it started out. So we do other projects that might have 30 buildings or six that we just kind of go through and, and do lighting or air conditioning, that kind of stuff. Um, but this one was a, a top user and, um, you know, they had some ideas of, of how to save energy within the data centers. So that's that's kind of how it was, was focused and selected and, and pushed in that direction. And and can you talk a little bit about these energy saving measures? Uh, you know, what are you specifically doing and how do they work? For one, it was a, um, a source, you know, a, a utility source. So, like, there was a lot of steam being run to this building. So we cut the steam, you know, there, that contract expired and, you know, there was a lot of, savings for one switching to you know electricity and gas as opposed to the old steam because that 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 um plant produced so much and steam was was gone so we had to go to a new source and so the uh, air cooled chillers um are, are much more efficient in, in 
in producing uh, cooling for um, the building. So, and then also they they kind of split the system up to there's a there's a half of the cooling goes to um, the the spaces like where the people are actually working the administration offices, and then then the other side was it went specifically to the data center floor. And so there were some savings in that regard. And then there's other stuff that they do like you know lighting replacements throughout the whole building. So they go from I want to say they probably had fluorescent lighting, and then they, now they're doing LEDs. Uh, you know, for example, that, that's one way to get uh, cooling, uh, cooling or energy savings. And then other stuff was as simple as, hey, there's this old water heater that's you know that's just used for like let's say bathrooms and stuff. I mean, we would swap that out for something more efficient. Anything that would basically was the older technology, we we put in something new. You know, there's there's definitely savings there, basically uh, efficiencies. And you were mentioning something about these pods within data centers as well on, on making things cool in an easier way. How do those work? Essentially, you're, you take a big room where all the servers and all these racks, it's a whole big floor full of racks and stuff. So you're, you're having to cool this entire space to 60 degrees. Let's just say, like, it's got to be pretty cold when you walk in there. So that's a lot of energy used for ramping up those, those chillers the whole time to cool that entire space. And now we're taking these servers... And we're putting them in these little pods. And there's like, you know, still like a, a basically a rack system. So they're, you know, kind of stacked on top of each other. But you're condensing them down in a much smaller space. And now you only have to cool that little area as opposed to the big room. So once you kind of do that, then, you know, there's a significant amount of energy savings based on, on that alone, just kind of reducing the, the space that they that has to be cooled. You're also talking about how these energy savings need to start paying for themselves and how you're, you're basically trying to break even on this. How are you seeing these uh, savings realized and over what point of time? You set up these contracts or finance, let's just say, I think this is 20, you know, 23 years, something like that. Um, and so then you, you set it up where your annual savings um, is greater than your annual payment. So you're going to make a finance payment, an annual payment. And I think it has to be like, you know, a dollar less there. Your savings have to be essentially a dollar more than what you're going to be paying. And then really, as soon as these things are put in place, I mean, you you know, you're talking that, you know, like a two-year construction period, let's say, as soon as that all that stuff's in place, you, you're starting to realize your savings. It's interesting how, you know, how fast that works. So the, the contract puts this together and they say, okay, here, here's our guaranteed savings. So they have to meet this, not the savings uh, or else there's some kind of, you know, penalties are within the contract, but, so they already have to uh, meet their guarantee. And usually, once they put everything in, the, the savings is a lot higher than, you know, what they expected, honestly. That's how it starts to, you know, come into play. It's like almost immediately, as soon as they start, you know, replacing the light bulb, you're going to see it on your bill, really. And are these things that might eventually be pushed into a larger Navy data centers or larger Navy installations in hopes of, of doing future savings as well? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we can say specific to data center, yeah, for sure. I mean, any any building that we, any project that we've had, uh, is usually typically to okay, you're going to replace the lighting to something a little more efficient, like LEDs. You know, there's new HVAC, uh, you know, heating and air conditioning, you know, boilers, everything, all this new, anything really that has uh, it consumes energy. You know, there's there's probably better technology that you can replace. So if there's buildings like that or other data centers that haven't been 
looked at really there there yeah there is significant savings that could be had Doug McCurda, mechanical engineer at Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command Southwest, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calm and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.